Good morning, church family. I hope you all had a great Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving break, Thanksgiving holiday, enjoyed some great food. Um, this morning we will be in Psalm 111, so if you can go ahead and turn there. Um, uh, now we're actually going through the series of Psalms, but then took a break from our regular series and just focusing on this uh, idea of Thanksgiving and thanks living. So the title of... He did it again. <laughs> did not mean to be funny. It's just the goal is that by the end of this psalm, we want to be a people who want to live a life of thanks living. Because we are people who are grateful for what God has done in our lives. So, you know, Thanksgiving in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, Thanksgiving and praising God are inseparable because a grateful heart always finds reasons to praise God. So, we will be in Psalm 111. And when you're talking about a topic like this on praising the Lord, there's usually like three responses that would come. The first one, first response is like, yeah, I think I'm doing well. I, I think I praise God. And the second response is like what I would categorize as like the, in the NFL's come on, man. Like, come on, man. So these kind of people who praise God, but it's all about them. They praise God. God, I praise you because I'm such a wonderful person. God, I praise you because I'm not sinning like those people over there. God, I praise you. Actually, in fact, God, you should praise me. Just think about how beautiful I am. That's when, that's when we realize, like, okay, come on, man. And then the third response, which is probably more relevant for where we are, is, well, I don't thank God like I used to. So I feel guilty about it. Now, thanks to you for bringing the topic up. Now I feel guilty because of you. And I guess I need to make a schedule, and then, you know, every day I got to praise God. But partly, we don't take moments to stop and praise God because we are so busy. We are people who are busy. Sometimes the days just feel so blur that we don't even realize what happened yesterday. I mean, just think about it. Think about the circumstances we're in. Like, you know, if you have kids, you not only keep them up with your own schedule, work, but you got to keep up with your kids' schedules and the kids have to keep up with their school schedules and games, young adults trying to grow their career. And, you know, some of them are in this cross-section of life where they not only have to care for their kids, but also have to care for their aging parents. And while all along trying to be faithful, we are busy people. But what this psalm does is not only it teaches us that we are called to praise God, but the psalmist, what he does is he compels us to praise God. So he, he's actually, this psalm is not, he's not talking to God, he's not addressing to God, he's actually talking to a congregation, and he's exhorting them to praise the Lord. And so the big idea for us is that we praise God, not only because we are called to, but because we are compelled to praise him. We praise God, not only because we are called to praise Him, but because we are compelled to praise Him. So I'm going to read Psalm 111. This is Psalmist writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So this is God's Word. Psalm 
So let's approach it as God's word. So Psalmist says, praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Let's pray. God, we want to pause and ask for your blessing and for your help. God, would you please teach us how we can praise you in the days of our lives, the days that you've given us. God, we're not just after information, but transformation. Would you please transform me, transform everyone that hears me, that we will be a people who live a life of thanksgiving, live a life of praising you all the days of our lives. You've given us enough reasons to praise you, God. So help us to see clearly and to understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first, in verse 1, what the author is doing is he's calling his audience to praise the Lord. So this is the hallelujah psalm. It is you all praise the Lord. So and then he says, so just, just think about it like that praise the Lord. This is, this is a call for us to come out of our own chaos, our own busyness, and to intentionally praise the Lord. And he shows us how he does it. So he's not only personal. He says, when he says, I will give thanks to the Lord. He's saying there's a personal commitment to praising God. And then it's a wholehearted praise. He says, I will thank, give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. So heart is not just this organ that pumping blood. Especially in the Old Testament, the heart involves intellect. It's our will. It's our strength. It's our thoughts. So what Psalmist is saying is, I'm going to wholehearted, I have a wholehearted devotion in giving thanks to the Lord. I will praise Him with all my heart. So there is this genuine gratitude. And then notice there's a communal aspect of praise. He says, in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Yes, our faith is personal, but it's not private. We praise God together. We not only praise God individually in our lives, but we praise Him in the congregation. We come together, join, and praise Him. This is actually a beautiful testimony for all the people that don't know the Lord. They can look at us. They can look at the testimony and why we celebrate, why we praise God. And when we do that and when they watch us, we can give the testimony of all the reasons that led us, that enable us to praise him. So, and finally, his focus is on the Lord. So he's not praising for the sake of praising. He's not focused on just praising or how can I praise. His focus is on the Lord. Two times he's repeating the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord. It's a, 
Lord is the Yahweh God, the covenant-keeping God who has revealed himself in the Bible. So he's saying, to that God, I'm going to give thanks. To that God, I'm going to praise his name. So his praise is verbal, it's public, it's intentional, and it's just a genuine expression of gratitude. So think about it. When was the last time you praised God like the West Psalmist is exhorting us to do? My goal is not to guilt you. My goal is to compel you to come to a place, to come to a conclusion that this is a God who is worthy of our praise. And then Psalmist gives us all the reasons why we should praise from verse 2 to 9. He's painting this splendor and the majesty of God, and he's talking about how great and awesome is he. And, and then he goes to the specific reasons on why we should praise him. So first it starts with general. So the next point is the compelling reasons to praise. Starts with general reasons from verse 2 to 4. So he says, his works are great, verse 2. And he says, they are full of splendor and majesty, verse 3. And his righteousness endures forever. He says, his works are wonderful and memorable. Not only that God did all these wonderful works, but his goal is for us to remember. So he's, this isn't just about God doing great things. It's about God ensuring that these deeds are not forgotten, that we remember. In verse 2 especially, it says, Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. It's meant to be studied, meant to be delighted. Look at the creation. We exalt God, we praise Him, and then we delight in God's creation. If you, um, if you ever been to a Cambridge University, there is this uh, lab, it's a physics lab, and the entrance of that physics lab is this verse too. Great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. So what they're acknowledging, all the scientists and research, is that this is God's creation. We're studying and we're researching. So great are the works of the Lord studied by all who delight in them. But the psalmist, if we just stop there, we can conclude that God is someone who's transcended. It means like he's somewhere out there. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes on. He makes it personal. So from verse 5 to verse 9, he gives specific reasons on giving these compelling reasons for us to pray. So in verse, the specific reasons, he's now actually talking about the goodness of God and the kindness towards us in his providential care, verses 5 and 6, that he gives food and he gives land inheritance. And then he goes on to say that he remembers his covenant forever. It's not an obligation for even though when we fail on our side, God remembers his covenant forever. So this is, this is actually striking because in the context, what's happening is the psalmist is recalling a, spe- a special episode in the life of Israelites, that is the Exodus. So when God redeemed them from the slavery, redeemed them from Egyptians, and then bringing them back to the promised land, so that is the instance he is talking about. He sent a redemption to his people and then he provided food that is talking about manna. He remembers his covenant forever. He's shown great power because he gave them the land. And just think about it. Why is it so striking? Because the psalmist here is saying he provides food for those who fear him. And, but if you know what the, uh, what the Israelites have done in the wilderness is that they actually were not fearing him. They were in fact complaining and grumbling. To that people, God has given food. 
ESV translation, it says he provides food. But in actually the original Hebrew, it is uh, in the past tense, so it is actually perfect form. That means uh, action has already happened. So he provided food to those who fear him. And the action has already happened in terms of like when God did that through manna. But for us, the action has already happened in the sense that God has already provided food for us. Let me explain that further because I see some blank faces. So in Hebrew language, uh, when the author is writing, he said he's perf- he provided food that is actually written in past tense, like perfect form. And when it's written in perfect form versus imperfect form, so perfect form is the action has already been done. The imperfect form is that action has not been done yet. So when God says he has provided food, from God's perspective, this action has already been done. From our perspective, it is something ongoing. That's why the translators translate it as provides, like in the present tense. Let me give you another example, which probably makes it clear. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah says he was bruised for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, talking about Jesus. So from God's perspective, it is actually written in perfect form. So the action has already been done. But from Isaiah's perspective, it is something that needs to be done in the future. So bring that idea back here in this verse. So from God's perspective, he has already providentially took care of us. From our perspective, this is something ongoing. That we rely on him each and single day. He has already done the work. Why is this so significant? Because his providential care is not just a historical fact. It's a present reality. Just think about what would that do to you. Gives you assurance. When you're waiting, when you're anxious about what tomorrow is going to hold, from God's perspective, that has already been taken care of. When you think about waiting about the lab results, or when you're thinking about, is my spouse going to come back? When you're thinking about, how do I have this conversation with my friend? Or how do I actually address this? Or what's my future going to hold? From God's perspective, his providential care has already been taken care of. From our perspective, it is ongoing. So what it does for us is that instead of us getting anxious, instead of us worrying about what's going to happen, we can actually reflect on it and praise God because he has already taken care of it. It's just a paradigm shift that our minds need to think and change because God has already taken care of it. Now all I need to do is step, take that leap of faith, walk in faith, walk in obedience, and praise him. Praise him. Because from his perspective, he has taken care of me. The outcome may not be favorable for all the time for us, but since we know he's a good father who's loving, he only do, does what is good for us, we can trust in his providential care. The psalmist, this in, in and of itself, should actually let us jump out of our seats and praise him. But the psalmist doesn't stop there. He goes on. Especially in verse 9, he says he sent redemption to his people. 
I'm going to come back to the idea of redemption later. But just this word, the Old Testament scholars would tell us that this word is actually, uh, redemption means uh, God has already paid ransom in redeeming people. So when God redeemed people from Egypt, he has paid the ransom to redeem his people. So when God redeems us, he has paid the ransom to redeem us. That's what Psalmist is reminding his audience that, hey, he has sent redemption to his people. Then he says he has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. So he's praising God. This actually, in just God's providence, this psalm has been so applicable to me. Just this past Tuesday, I was just so frustrated. And just all the things that were happening in my life and just so frustrated. And just thinking like, God, what are you doing? And then I was reminded that, okay, I'm preaching on this psalm. And so I probably need to practice what I'm preaching. And just started working on all the things that God has done in my life so I can praise him. Church family, I cannot tell you how overwhelmed I felt in just that moment when I made the transition. To just reflect, that morning I had a great call with Pastor Mike who was so encouraging. I had a great meeting with Brian Hellman and just all the God's care for my mom and how he has been providing medical needs for my mom and just the things that as I was reflecting, God, I was like, gosh, I'm so behind on giving you thanks. You've done so much. It was just that paradigm shift. I've, uh, I've worked on this passage and then had like 15 reasons on why. The psalmist gives reasons to praise him. Uh, I was told last time that when you have a slide like that, just get out of the way. Uh, but here's the good news. So Charles, thanks to him, he actually put it. So on the, if you go to Church Center app, there's like four at the bottom. So home page, give and all that. At the bottom right is a tab called articles. Click on that. You will actually get all this information. So don't worry about it. It's already there. So just at this point, just just reflect and thank God. And that leads to my last point, the commitment to obedience. So a psalm like this is a hallelujah psalm. The psalmist would typically end in just closing and praising God. But he does something different here. He actually says, he actually calls us to obedience. He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And all those who practice it, all those who obey it, have a good understanding. We think about obedience as something that is restricting, that is so limiting. But what the psalmist is saying is not actually liberating. You would have more understanding. You would have a good understanding. You would have wisdom. And the fear of the Lord, which is actually, it's, it's a fear, obviously, right? It's a fear of the Lord but not something that we should be afraid of God. Does that make sense? The fear, it's actually reverential fear, but not something that we should be afraid of him about. Look at all the majestic work that God has done. Of course, there is fear. How, just knowing that, that how powerful he is, how amazing he is. Like, Look at all the creation and the sun and everything that he created. But because of his covenantal faithfulness, because of his grace, because of his compassion... You shouldn't be afraid of him. So the fear is something that is that we're in awe 
of who God is. This is not like, ah, you're so cute. No, this is A-W-E, ah. That kind of ah that we are in reverential fear of who God is. And that is the result is that it is the beginning of wisdom. How many of us would need wisdom? Then all those who practice it have good understanding. How many of us need good understanding in each and every day of our life? Starts with fearing God. Starts with obedience. Uh, you might have heard this story. Just thinking about obedience. So in the Sunday school, the teacher was telling a story to the kids about Noah's Ark. And she asked, just to test them, just to see how, what the knowledge about obedience is. And so she asked, why do you think Noah did exactly as God commanded? And so she's giving them answers. So she said, was it because Noah had a collection of uh, animal stickers and wanted the real thing? And the kids were like, no, 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 no. And, and she asked the second way, was it because Noah was really good at building things? The kids were like, no, 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 no. And so the teacher asked, like, well, why do you think that Noah did exactly what God was commanded him to do? So always this one boy, right? The boy responds saying, it's because Noah can't swim. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes we think obedience. So the point of this story is that sometimes we think of obedience as our skills, our abilities on what we can do and how we can like actually tie our own bootstraps and then come and obey God or the skills that we could bring or we cannot bring, like can't swim, can't swim. But it's, more, it's about more trusting in God's limitless wisdom and power and his ability to make us new, his ability to change us, transform us. Leads, that requires faith, requires trust in God. I said I'll come back to this idea of redemption. Go to verse 9. I want us to encourage us why we can trust God. So he says he sent redemption to his people. So again, in the Old Testament, that means that God paid his ransom. So it's not just about physical liberation. It's about paying a ransom. So oftentimes, slaves were in debt. So they couldn't get, a, get, a, they couldn't get themselves out of the debt. So someone has to come and pay for the ransom. So this idea of that God paying the ransom was already in the Old Testament. But there was never an indication of how that is going to happen. People talked about it. The prophets talked about it. That God's going to pay ransom. God's going to pay ransom to liberate us, not just from physical slavery, but actually from sin and death. But it's always how that's going to happen. How? When? Until you go to the New Testament. Until you go to the Gospels and you see Jesus. God-man. Perfect Son of God. Came to earth. Lived a life. Praise God with all his heart, always giving thanks to God. The thing that we could not do, the thing that we failed to do, he accomplished it. And then he died on the cross. And then I'm glad he just didn't stay there. He rose again on the third day. Something that we're going to celebrate in a moment later. But Jesus Christ paid that ransom in the Old Testament. It was always God telling, paying the ransom, but he was never told us how he's going to do it. But in the, when you see the New Testament, you see Jesus and how he paid for our ransom. 
now we have a reason to trust God. Because in Romans 8.31, Paul says, He who did not spare his own son, how shall he with him also freely give us all things? What Paul is doing is making an argument from greater to lesser. He's saying if God did not spare his infinitely valuable son, just think about it, like, who would spare, who would actually give his own son to die for other people? And Paul says if God didn't do, hold on to that one, what makes you think that he would actually hold on to giving you some good things that you need in your life? Greater to lesser. If God already gave you Jesus, why do you doubt him that he would not take care of you? Why would you doubt his providential care? That's what Paul is saying. We have enough reasons to trust God. Loved ones, salvation, let it not be just some theoretical story. Let it be something that we can rejoice in, that we can thank God, that we can spend time reflecting. We have enough reasons to praise God. In a moment, in a little bit, we're going to see another reasons when we see people getting baptized. But if there's someone in this room that doesn't know Christ, what I want to invite you is to receive this Christ. It's not just about giving thanks. It's about actually having Jesus as your Savior so that he would give you a new heart. And when I talked about the providential care that he provides, that could be yours. And you receive him by faith. He'll give you a new heart, a new perspective, a new attitude, a new spirit. So you can be transformed. For those who have already placed their faith in Christ, we have enough reasons to thank and praise God, don't we? Amen. Let's pray. God, we want to pause. And again, thank you, God. Thank you for your providential care. Thank you for your redemption. Thank you for giving us your son. Yeah, thank you for being a good father. As powerful as you are, if you were not good, we would have had no hope. But you are gracious and compassionate and a loving father. So we praise you, God. God, would you please receive our blessings and praise. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.